I have told our teaching team on numerous occasions, I said, hey, um, it is a terrible idea uh, to start off a sermon with a disclaimer, and so let me offer up two to start off with, because one is a bad idea, but two is okay. So one, uh, it's a bad example uh, for a pastor not to sit through worship and then to not make himself available after worship, uh, but I've been sick all weekend. And so out of abundance of just caution, I kind of walk out here and preach. I'm going to walk off the back at the end, which I never do. And uh, so just one disclaimer there. And then two, uh, we lied. But it's good reason. All right, so there's a disclaimer. Uh, We said we were done with the Ask Anything uh, series that Dr. Smith was going to wrap up our super uh, summer emphasis. But uh, when we look back through our our, uh, super summer and the Ask Anything series, there were 30 or 35 questions submitted. And we went back and look, and I think because some of them required detailed answers uh, to answer them in such a way that didn't raise more questions, uh, I think we only got through six total questions out of 35. And so, uh, so we're going to teach you that just a little bit here uh, more this morning and one more message in our Ask Anything series, and then we'll pick back up in our Red Letter series we were teaching through uh, after uh, starting back in next week, okay? So I'm going to do my best. Uh, to tackle four questions this morning, and we don't really have a a, a base passage, but if you want to find a place when we get to question number three, uh, we're going to spend an extended amount of time in Matthew chapter 13, so if you want to take your phone, your Bibles Bibles or tablets, you can turn there, and uh, we're not going to start there, but we'll land there uh, for a little while uh, in question number three, okay? So, with those disclaimers uh, behind us, uh, let me just go ahead and jump right into the questions. Uh, question number one that we want to answer this morning is this. What does it mean to entertain angels unaware? Uh, I feel like a person uh, in my life uh, might be an angel. And these usually come anonymous. This one was signed. It said, sincerely, Tasha. <laughs> Tasha, whoever you are, that, that is a great question. And I'd say the answer you probably have been, uh, whoever you are. So no, the, the person said that it's been someone in my life the last few months and in all these kind of divine circumstances. Could this be an angel or can we really know that we are in fact entertaining uh, angels unaware? Well, the reference to that question uh, comes out of Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 2. And here's what Hebrews 13, 2 says. Uh, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares, all right? So uh, this is a place where I think we have to let the text speak for itself. And and just as a side note, any time that you try to add things to the Scripture or make application where the Scripture doesn't make application or draw clear conclusions where the Scripture doesn't draw clear conclusions, uh, all of that falls under the heading of a type of Bible interpretation that's called Arguing from silence, which, by the way, is a terrible way to interpret the Scriptures. You know, the Bible's kind of silent on this or silent on the application or silent what this looks like, but I think this is what it looks like clearly. That's called an argument from silence, and it's a terrible way to interpret the Bible because here's the reality. In the silence that you're trying to speak into, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, right? So in that uh, thought process, uh, here's the reality. The Bible uh, doesn't... or the Bible at face value says when we're entertaining angels unaware, I think that's what it means. That when that happens, that that we're probably not aware of that. And so, But the Bible does offer us some theology uh, as it relates to uh, angels. And there's so much misunderstanding as it relates to angels. And here's why. Uh, There's a biblical theology where we 
uh, form our thoughts around where the scripture reveals. And then there's what's called a folk theology. And folk theology is this. It's just little pieces of things that we pick up from culture. We take all of those things we pick up and we form a theology around it. Now, when it comes to theology, there's 10 areas of systematic theology. Now, I won't go through all 10 this morning, all right? But the area where there's the most folk theology is probably around angels. And here's why. There's so much teaching uh, concerning angels that comes not from the Bible, but from Hollywood or Hallmark. Am I right? Right there, there's uh, um, Angels Touched by an Angel. Remember that show? Anybody, Anybody not heard that show, Touched by an Angel? Anybody not heard that? You're not going to heaven. I just want to share that. Right, right. So, right. Touched by an angel. There were angels in the outfield for a while. Remember that? There's that great hymn of the faith. Uh, I believe there are angels among us. Right from that great gospel quartet, Alabama. Praise God. Right? So, I, I could just go on and on and on about all these stories about angels and demons. And so, what happens is this we end up forming our theology about angels as a folk theology. I, I, I'm going to break some hearts today. All right? And so, and the reason is because you can. When you're leaving off the back when you're done, you say whatever you want, right? People, when they die, do not become angels. Right? People, when they die, do not turn into angels. Babies, when they die, do not turn into angels. Where does that come from? It comes from an old Hollywood movie. Right? Every time the bell rings, an angel gets its wings or something like that. I can't remember how that goes. But, but there's another point. It's folk theology. The Bible does not teach that. So, let me just give you some bullet points about a biblical theology of angels, uh, sit around this question, and, and I'll do my best to, to slow down uh, my normal rate of speed so you can jot some of these truths down, okay? So a little, little quick theology lecture on angels. What does the Bible actually teach regarding angels? So, uh, first off, the Bible assumes their existence. Did you know this? That out of the 66 books in the Bible, 34 of them reference angels directly or indirectly. So over half of the books in the Bible talk about angels. So this is not a subject that the Bible's silent on. Jesus, in looking at what he taught and the topics he addressed, multiple places, uh, it, the, he talked about angels. Uh, just in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 26. So, so Jesus spoke about them. Over half the Bible references angels. Uh, the second thing, the Bible describes the creation of angels. At a point in culture, angels got so popular, there's some stats I give you about the sales of angels and angel trinkets and all that kind of stuff, but, but angels became so popular that it almost ascended to the level of angel worship. Now, what's the problem with that? Angels, the Bible says, are created beings, and we should never worship creation. We should only worship the creator. And so angels are created beings. Scripture says they're created by God. Only God is without beginning, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Angels are created before the world and man. So, in your Bible, when it says this, that God created the heavens, plural, and the earth, uh, what I believe that teaches this is not only the physical realm of heaven, but all the inhabitation of heaven was created at that point. The Bible says that angels were created holy. Uh, The original purpose of an angel was to set apart for God's glory, to dwell with God, uh, to be kept by God. But we also know they had a free will, and so they fell. We'll get to that in just a minute. So the Bible describes their creation. The Bible talks about the nature of angels. Now, angels are personal beings. Now, what does that mean? We talk about personal beings. Here's what that means. They have intellect. They know things. First Peter 1, Matthew 28 talks about that. They have emotions. 
Job chapter 38, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 15. Uh, at the birth of Jesus, it says the angels are praising God. The Bible says in another place that when one sinner repents, the, all the angels rejoice. And so they have emotions and they have a free will or, or volitional will. Jude chapter 6 says some chose to worship God and some chose to rebel and fall with Satan. So they're personal beings, uh, but they're also uh, spirit beings. What's that mean? That for the most part, we don't see them existing uh, with physical bodies. Angels can only be in one place at one time. Uh, at some points in Scripture, they did appear in the form of man. Uh, interesting side note, Mark chapter 12 says angels cannot reproduce. And Luke chapter 20 says angels do not die. Once they were created, there is a set amount of angels. How many? Write this down. I have no idea, all right? So that's what, that's some real Bible theology regarding angels. But the main gist of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 about entertaining angels unaware, that, that's not really the point of that passage. The point of that passage is to show hospitality to everyone. Because as a side note, you may in fact be entertaining an angel that you're totally uh, unaware about. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, hey, when you're helping others, it's just like you're helping me. Uh, in, in Abraham opened up his home to three angels in Genesis chapter 18, so he's showing hospitality. So the point of that is this, when it says angels unaware, I think that means what it says. We're not aware that we're entertaining angels, and so but we should be showing hospitality to everyone, and there may be times on this side of eternity when you may be entertaining an angel, and you may not even be aware of it, okay? So, second question. The devil uh, knows scripture and knows how all things will end. Uh, why is it preached that he doesn't know that he loses? Now, I've never personally taught that, um, but, but I guess that is some folks have heard that or picked up on that. And so uh, let me just lean into that and address that. Well, to piggyback off the, the last question, uh, Satan is a fallen angel. And so what do we know about that? Satan was a created being. So what that means is this, is that he's subservient to God. Uh, for the life of me, I've never understood people saying, hey, I, I worship the devil. Right? What they're saying is, I worship someone who's subservient to the one who created. It doesn't even make any rational kind of sense. Uh, but Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. Th this may be the, one of the most important verses in all the Bible dealing with your understanding of angels. Psalm 8, 5 uh, says this. That man was made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Or angels were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. So, or man was. I got it right the first time. What does that mean? All right? So, if you're listening, say amen. Why don't you put your thinking cap on? When it comes to God's attributes, God has two sets of attributes. One are what's known as communicable attributes. The others are what's known as incommunicable attributes. Here, here's the way that I have memorized this or it's helped me, and maybe it's a terrible illustration. When I think of communicable, the word I think of is communicable disease, right? I don't know if that's a good way to think about it, but I've never forgotten it, okay? So communicable disease are diseases that are transferable from one person to another, okay? So the communicable attributes of God are those attributes of God that can be shared with angels or with people, all right? The incommunicable attributes of God are the ones that cannot be shared, and it's what makes God God. So for example, the Bible describes God as omnipresent and omnipotent. He can be all placed at the same time, and he's all-powerful. No one shares that attribute with God. It's an incommunicable attribute. And so what the Bible describes about angels, and Satan would fall into this category, is that angels share more 
incommunicable attributes with God than man, but uh, they're not this, they don't share all the attributes of God. So that's why Psalm 8.5 says that man was created a little lower than the angels. He doesn't have as many of God's incommunicable attributes uh, as an angel might. And so, uh, Scripture says, because that's true, uh, Satan is not omnipresent. Now, here's the bad news. With theological integrity, what that means is this. You probably can never offer up an excuse again. The devil made me do it. Right? He probably didn't. He can't be everywhere at all times because he doesn't share that incommunicable attribute. He's not all-powerful. He can't make you do anything that you don't want to do. Here's what I want you to understand about Satan and spiritual warfare. Whatever territory that Satan has claimed or his demons have claimed in your life, he's done so with your permission. Now that's good news. Because what that means is this. Because Christ has already won the victory, that we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory, praise God. And so, matter of fact, the Bible says Satan, because he doesn't have his unlimited power, James chapter 4 says this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 says this. Greater is he that is in me, the Holy Spirit, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So what else do we know about Satan? Here's a couple bullet points about biblical theology. Uh, he was the highest ranking angel. Did he wear a red costume? I don't know. All right. Uh, what are some of the names in scriptures? A partialist, Lucifer, Beelzebub. Belial, the evil one, the tempter, the prince of this world, the god of this age, the accuser of the brethren, uh, the prince of the power of the air. Those were all references to Satan at different points uh, in scripture. Uh, the Bible describes him as an open enemy of righteousness, a liar, a murderer. Um, the Bible says he seeks to oppose God by promoting evil in every way possible. Now, how does that actually happen? Two ways. Number one, I believe he's working uh, indirectly by tempting us to act on our sin nature. Now, here's a good truth about angels and demons and all those kind of things that sometimes Hollywood messes up. If you don't know this, I want you to understand this, that when a person is a believer in Christ and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in their heart, what that means is this, is that a believer in Christ cannot be demon-possessed. How many of you have watched the movie The Exorcist? It's a rated R movie. You shouldn't be watching that, all right? I sort of, it's a trick question. So, so here's the deal. Believers can't be demon-oppressed, right? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So Satan or his demons cannot come and overthrow the Holy Spirit who's taking residence up in your heart. But believers can be demon-oppressed. So here's what you think. One is an internal dwelling possession. One is an external influence, oppression. And so I believe Satan's greatest work is demonic oppression, where he's inciting our own sin nature. Here's the reality. We don't need that much help to sin, do we? And Satan knows that. And so he's constantly trying to find ways. I believe that his two primary weapons of warfare are emotional discouragement and intellectual doubt. And he's always preying on the fact that we have a sin nature. And so, uh, first off, uh, what, so the question originally was, why does it preach that uh, he, he doesn't know that he loses. Well, let me say two things about that. Number one, uh, I don't know how much scripture the devil knows. I don't know. We know that he knows some. Uh, he quoted scripture when he was tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness. But the whole canon of scripture was not complete at that time. So he knows some Bible. I don't know how much he knows. The Bible doesn't say, and I'm not going to 
make an argument from silence. So number one, we're not sure how much he knows. Maybe it's just enough to tempt, right? But the second thing is this. Whatever he does know, he's blinded to the truth of Scripture. There is a Bible doctrine. It's called the doctrine of illumination. Here's what that means. That means that the Holy Spirit inside of me, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he serves as teacher. And how that happens is this, is that there, there are, I encounter spiritual truth that prior to conversion, I'm spiritually blind to those truths. But through the work of Christ in me in the doctrine of illumination, my eyes are opened up or I see things that were once darkly, uh, I view darkly before I was converted. And so because Satan is not converted, uh, his eyes have not been opened up to the full realm of the truth of Scripture. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 that those who don't know Christ, their eyes have been blinded. So that's number one. But number two, he's full of pride. When the Bible says that he was cast out of heaven, uh, those passages, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, what was the main cause? It was pride. What he says in those Old Testament passages, I will ascend to the throne. I will be like the Most High. And one of the things we know and we experience about pride is this, is that pride is incredibly blinding. You ever try to share some truth with a person whose heart is filled with pride? It's not that you're not making good intellectual arguments, it's that their pride won't let them see the truth as it's revealed. Jude chapter 6 says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, so it's Satan, the fallen angels, or demons, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so, maybe Satan is aware that his defeat is imminent, but his pride will not let him admit defeat. You ever been in an argument, and all of a sudden the realization comes that, that you're wrong in the middle of that argument? At that point, you can say, hey, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, whatever. Or you can just double down and press down the gas pedal, which is the better option. Amen? I think that's Satan. I think his pride, even if he knows that his doom is imminent, I, I think his pride won't let him admit defeat. Because what was his initial motive? I will be like the most high. And so, I don't know how much scripture he knows. I don't know that his pride will allow him to admit defeat. And so, uh, and he's certainly not omniscient, he's certainly not omnipresent, and he's certainly not omnipotent, all, all those things, all right? Question number three, uh, can a person call themselves a believer, but keep sinning and not be repentant? That, that is a great question. Now, it's also a tricky question. Here's why. Let me explain this. On one hand, as long as we're in our earthly bodies on this side of eternity with our sinful nature... All of us are going to keep on sinning until we get to heaven. Turn and tell your neighbor, you're a sinner. This is a word of encouragement, right? So on one side of eternity, all of us are going to keep on sinning. So the reality is this. Uh, there'll come a day when we have our glorified bodies. I think I've told you this story before. I was listening to an interview with... Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, and uh, it's one of those interviews where you listen to it, and at the end of it, you're like, you're driving along, you're like, I'm not even a Christian, right? And the interviewer was asking her, they said, oh, he said, you know, you've, you've, you've not walked for over 50 years, she was, uh, become a quadriplegic in a diving accident as a teenager, and, and he said, I can't, I bet you can't wait to get to heaven, so you can jump out of that wheelchair and walk again, she just smiled and laughed, she said, you know what, she said, I'd be dishonest if I didn't tell you that, that that's, a, uh, that's not appealing to me, because it is. 
She said, but you know what I'm really excited about going to heaven? He said, what? She said, finally and fully, not only will I be free from this chair, I'll finally and fully be free from my sin. And I just thought, I'm not even saved, right? And so what she's describing is a theological truth known as glorification. Justification means I'm free from sin's penalty. That's what it means getting saved. Sanctification means I'm free from sin's power, but glorification means I'm free from sin's presence. And so until that day when we're with the Lord and glorification has taken place, we will always battle sin on this side of eternity. So in a theological sense, everybody is going to keep on sinning on this side of heaven. So I think the right way to think about this question, if I could reframe it, is this. Can a person truly be saved and yet continue in unrepentant, habitual patterns of sinful living? Or to use our terms before, can a person really experience justification and there appears to be no sanctification uh, after that? So uh, 15 years ago, gosh, longer than that, 16, 17, 18 years ago, when I was in uh, ministry in my first church, uh, there was a little boy who didn't, didn't come to the church, and he used to come before we went there, and, and, uh, he, but he showed up around camp time. I was like, who is this? And I'm like, oh, he, he does that, and he shows up around camp. And So long story short, um, I'm going to be as kind as I can. Uh, he was a little bit of a rascal, all right? And so uh, we got to camp, and some of the kids said, oh, my gosh, he's doing this, he's doing that, he's doing that. And I said, well, you probably should offer some loving accountability. And they said, they said, well, here's what he said. My name's in the book. I can do whatever I want now. And they said, what do we say to him? I said, go back and tell him he ought to check the book again. Amen? So the, the idea is this, is that can a person have no desire for holiness, no growth in Christ, no appetite for sanctification, but yet generally be converted? I believe the Bible teaches the answer is no. That's easy believism. It's decisionism. Someone prayed a prayer, they walked an aisle, they had an emotional experience, but there's been no change whatsoever in their Life. Think about this, that a person can be a slave to sin, can repent of that, receive Christ, he takes up residence in their heart, indwells them through the Holy Spirit, and yet still live as a slave to sin. Does that make any sense at all, biblically? No. And so the Bible uses the term fruit to talk about attitudes and actions that reflect the character of Christ, uh, that are just going to naturally spring out of us if Christ dwells within us. And so this is where I told you we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. So Matthew chapter 13 is a parable. Now parables are simply fictitious stories that teach real spiritual truths. Okay? So the parable of the soils, Matthew chapter 13, uh, listen to what it says beginning in verse 1. It says, later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake. And a large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. There he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore. So that part is literal. This is a recorded history. But then he begins to teach in a, in a parable, okay? And he told them stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Verse 5, other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. Verse 6, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Verse 7, other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Let me stop right here. So he's given us a description of three different seeds 
that none of them came to fruition. Verse 5 is a picture of a shallow emotional decision that is not genuine conversion. Verse 6 is a picture of a profession of faith that did not endure trials. When trials come, that person just withered because the roots weren't really uh, down deep into Christ. Because saving faith is always persevering faith. is what the Bible teaches. So that's a false conversion as well. Verse 6 is a picture of the gospel when it said that it fell among the thorns and grew up and choked out the tender plants. That's a person who made a profession of faith, made some kind of decision, but then the thorny pleasures of sin and the weeds of sin choked out that profession to show that it was not genuine. So this is very important to understand. The first three are a picture of an unregenerate heart, okay? But verse 8 is a picture where the seed of the gospel took root and produced a harvest. Listen to verse 8. Still, other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Verse 9, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Now, let me ask you a question. When the harvester comes, is there anything to harvest with the first three seeds. Nothing. One, the birds gobbled up. One got choked out by the, by the weeds of sin. And one, the, the trials of life or the heat of life, verse 6, burned it up. There's nothing to harvest. But the one that did take root, that, that did produce, the Bible says 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Uh, here's the point. That when the gospel takes root in a heart, the natural overflow will be fruit that will be ready to be harvested when Jesus comes as the great harvester. So here's the point. There is no such thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christian. John chapter 15, Jesus said this, Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. So someone asked me one time, they said, What do you call a, a non-fruit-bearing Christian? What, what do you call that? Because I know these people who made professions of faith, and it seems kind of shallow, and... They have an appetite for the word of God, no fellowship with the people of God, no commitment to the house of God, no participation in the work of God. But yet they're absolutely, you know, they're saved, they argue they're saved. They said, what do you call a, a non-fruit-bearing Christian? I said, hey, write this down. A non-fruit-bearing Christian is what we call a non-Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not produce gospel fruit. Now, if that's easy to understand, say amen. Here's where it gets tricky, though. Let me try to make it simple with an illustration. How many apples does an apple tree have to produce to be considered a living apple tree? Now, this may surprise you. I, I don't do a lot of farming. Right? So I'm not an agricultural scholar. But, but here's what I do know. That uh, the answer could be how many apple trees does a living uh, tree have to produce to be alive? Uh, at least one. Amen? At least one. And so some trees will produce little fruit and some apple trees produce a lot of fruit, but nonetheless, they're in fact living apple trees. So what's the illustration? The same is true as a follower of Jesus Christ. Some will produce a harvest of fruit 30-fold, some 60-fold, the Bible says some even a 100-fold, depending on how much they tend to the soil of their own hearts. Right? Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. 
But the reality is simply this. There is no such thing, no picture in the Bible anywhere of a person who makes a profession of faith and there's no fruit ever in their life, but they're eternally secure. Now, do I believe in eternally secure? Absolutely. For every person who's genuinely converted, every one of them is secure in Christ. So the question becomes, can a person keep on sinning and not be repentant of those things? Uh, I don't think the Bible teaches. I think that's not a, I think that's an unconverted person. But here's the good news for all of us. Did you know this? You're not going to heaven because of your practice. Praise God. You're going to heaven because of your position in Christ. You're not going to heaven because of your spiritual performance. You're going to heaven because the performance Christ did on your behalf on the cross of Calvary. Now, should there be a pattern of righteousness in a person who's generally received Christ? Of course. But is that pattern of righteousness, does that put me into heaven? No. Or does it just show evidence that I, in fact, belong to Jesus Christ? Yes. And so, what's the greatest assurance of salvation? Write this down. A pattern of obedience. Not an experience, not your name and some date written down in the front of your Bible, not the fact that you got emotional. Listen, the greatest indicator that a person is truly saved is not perfection, but a pattern of obedience. You say, where do you get that from? From Jesus. I think it's a pretty good source. Amen? Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, obey me. Now, can you be a Christian and not love Jesus? This is what we call a softball, right? The answer is no. Okay, you can't be a Christian and not love Jesus. And so what did Jesus say is the greatest evidence that you, in fact, do love me. He said you obey me. Is that perfection? No. Is there a pattern or a pursuit of obedience? Yes. Yes, with a T on the end. I don't even know what that is. All right? And so question number four. We're going to get through all four. Question number four. This is a long one, though. <laughs> You've taught recently on the resurrection of our bodies at the rapture. Where does our soul go while it waits to be reunited with our resurrected and glorified bodies? Now, here's another form of that question I've asked, uh, been asked. What, what, like, if the streets of gold and the you know, jasper walls and all that kind of stuff, the pearly gates, if that's after the millennial reign of Christ, if that's the new heaven, the new earth, Revelation 21, 22 talks about, are people who die now who are converted, they go to heaven? Are people who are unconverted, they go to hell now? Is that something future? So those are great Great questions. Now, um, don't get alarmed by this, but the best place to start with this answer is in the Old Testament. That, that's like the person who's getting ready to tell you a story and says, hey, I was born at a young age, right? So I promise I'm going to try and be concise, okay? In the Old Testament, there are many references to a place called Sheol. The word in the Hebrew is Sheol. The counterpart word in the New Testament in the Greek is the word Hades, now, there are multiple places in our English translations where Hades is translated as hell. I don't think that's the most faithful translation. I'll get that here in just a little bit, okay? But here's what I want you to understand. So Sheol, Hebrew word, Hades, New Testament word, same place. So what is that? All the people who died in the Old Testament went to this intermediate state of death called uh, Sheol. So where do we see that taught in? We see it taught in Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, and sometimes, again, that word Hades particular is translated Hell, but here's the problem. Hell, in the most literal sense of the word, from Revelation chapter 20, where it says, those not found written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. That reference to hell, that little reference, is a future state after the great white throne judgment. Okay? And so, in the Old Testament, the saints would 
go to a place called Sheol, both the saved and the unsaved. But here's the reality, and, and I'm trying to be confusing, but, but the Bible describes this. In Sheol, there were unconverted people there and converted people there in a place, a different department or place or whatever you think about. The Bible describes this known as uh, Abraham's bosom, okay? But all the people at that time went to Sheol. Now, full disclosure, the majority of the time that the word Sheol is used in a generic sense in the Bible, it often is an unpleasant reference to those who are unsaved and eternally condemned. And so, the reality is when Scripture talks about that, uh, the psalmist wrote this, Psalm 49, 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Now, this is super important, so listen closely. This is not the doctrine of purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory in some faith traditions, the idea is there's this holding tank, this intermediate holding tank, and, and people's eternal fate is undecided. And so way back in the Middle Ages, uh, the Catholic Church capitalized on that. Listen, if you want to make some money, here's a good idea. It's a sin, by the way, but here's a good idea. Tell people that, hey, your loved one is kind of hanging in the balance in all of eternity, but if you give me some lunch money, I'm going to help them out. Amen? You talk about raising money, and that's exactly what happens, indulgences. So this is not purgatory. So purgatory is like, hey, they're there, and if you pay us some indulgences, if you light some candles, if you, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, then maybe they'll, they'll get out of purgatory. So this is not, uh, Sheol is not the same. Here's why. Whatever their eternal destination was, once they were in Sheol, it was sealed. That's it. Either eternally condemned or awaiting for Jesus' deliverance into heaven. So that's, that's the reality. But in the Old Testament, those saints who were in a state of Sheol were waiting for the promise of their rescuer who is known as Jesus. Now, there are several references in the Bible that say this. And I've had this question lots of times. Where it says that Jesus descended to the dead. One of the most famous creeds of the church says he descended into hell, which I don't think that's uh, the most accurate way to describe that. So what does that mean? What it means is this. Is that Jesus really experienced death just as all humans did. And that as he went into Sheol, that, that Old Testament dwelling place, 1 Peter chapter 3 says he declared victory and took those people out of Sheol into paradise with him. Is what scripture describes. Now what about the unconverted people? Fate's already sealed. He did not go down and preach the gospel and some of them were unconverted. They got saved and he took them with him. It says he took the Old Testament saints and took them into paradise with him. Okay? So what does that mean for those who have died on now? It's a long way around to, to get there. What happens to my soul? What waits to be reunited with my glorified body? All right? So here's the reality. Paul couldn't have been any clearer when he said this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Period. That's it. Period. Jesus told the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not one day, not those, what did he say? Today you'll be with me uh, in paradise. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, to depart and be with Christ is far better. And so everybody who's ever been regenerate immediately is transported into the presence of God upon death. Now, here's a million dollar question. What is life like for those souls who are with Jesus in paradise? So if we're waiting our resurrected body and the streets of gold and the pearly gates and the jasper walls and all those things that Revelation 21, 22 talks about is the future state of the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. What happens between now and then 
Uh, here's the reality. I don't know. How encouraging is that, right? Scripture just gives us a glimpse. Now, does it, with the glimpses it gives, can we conclude that we'll be conscious and in Jesus' presence in a very known, tangible way? Absolutely. Well, we have some kind of physical identity. I, I don't know. While we're awaiting our glorified bodies. What does it mean by a glorified body? The Bible calls it a, it's a spirit energized body. It's a body with no corruption. It never wears out. Now, here's the most common question I've had about heaven. It mostly happens at funerals. And the Bible says, or people ask me this. When I go to heaven, will I know people that I don't know then? So, so here's the answer. Short answer is yes. You'll know people just as they were known. Okay? The Bible says, though, now we see through a glass darkly. Then we'll be known at just as we were known, the scripture says. The Bible also says that upon heaven, I have the mind of Christ. So what does that mean? Let me ask you, does it make any sense? That if I have the mind of Christ in heaven, then I know less in heaven than I knew on earth. Of course not. So will people who have gone on and, and passed away have been converted, are they in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ? Yes. Do I believe that the... Streets of gold, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth is a future state after the great white throne judgment. Yes. Do I believe that hell or the lake of fire is also the future state of the unregenerate? Yes. Do I believe that once a person dies, their fate is eternally sealed? Yes. But in the intermediate, some things we, we don't know is this. All the details and while we're awaiting our resurrected bodies. But I want you to hear this clearly. Nobody is in heaven today thinking Man, this isn't as great as I thought it was going to be. Amen? Nobody's, you know, people ask me sometimes, like, you think people are looking down from the earth, you know, heaven, uh, us on the earth, right? You know, Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses, which is totally out of context, by the way. And I just tell them this, I, well, you know, the Bible doesn't describe it, but here's what I know. That being in the presence of God finally and fully in, in that form before my eternal state, I don't know that anything could distract my attention from that. I don't know that anybody's looking down from heaven going, oh, you guys eating meatloaf without me? Man, I love meatloaf, right? And I like meatloaf, but it's not fattening, and I know that because I eat it all the time. So, nobody's disappointed. Nobody's getting there and waiting their glorified, resurrected body and going, oh, man, I, you know, this is kind of a letdown. It's kind of a lame, right? And on the flip side is this. Nobody, nobody is separated from God in all of eternity, in a place the Bible calls Sheol or Hades, and is saying, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. In other words, there's separation from God. And listen, the worst thing about hell, there's a lot of mystery about hell, the worst thing about hell is this, it's separation from God and all of his common goodness he displays on the earth to everybody, the just and the unjust, the Bible says. And so whether it's hell or Sheol or Hades or Gehenna or the eternal lake of fire that someone's referring to, here's the reality. People will be eternally separated from the one that loves you and from the one who sent Jesus to rescue you. Nobody's disappointed waiting for the streets of gold in the new Jerusalem. Nobody's experiencing relief waiting for the lake of fire. But here's the good news of the gospel. That today, no matter where you stand in that eternal spectrum, today... Here's the reality. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And the good news of grace is this, is that everybody, everybody who runs to Jesus makes it. Would you bow your heads this morning? And I just want to ask you one simple question. 
Do you have peace with God? Because you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because his work on the cross is our only hope of redemption. And so if you're here and the answer is no, or I don't know, here's the good news. You can receive Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins right where you're seated at this morning. If that describes you, you've never received Christ, you're unsure, but you're at a place right now where the Spirit of God is drawing you to Himself, and you say, you know what, today, I want to know for sure. I want to accept Christ as my Savior. I want to be born again. Then if that expresses the desire of your heart right where you're at, would you just, would you pray with me? Not because this prayer is some kind of magic words, but because it expresses the sincere desire of your heart. Would you pray and receive Christ today if you've yet to do that or you're unsure? Would you pray with me? God, I know that I'm a sinner when I compare my life to the life of Jesus. I fall short. God, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins, was buried and rose the third day. And I believe that if I receive him by faith, he will forgive me of my sins. And so today, I'm accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm tired of wondering if I'll be good enough to get into heaven. And so I'm believing on Jesus and Jesus alone and his work on the cross for my forgiveness. So Jesus, save me from my sins so that one day I might be in paradise with you and all those who know the Lord have gone before me. Father, we're grateful that even though some of the things about the Bible are not as clear as we'd like them to be, even though your ways are higher than our ways, even though that none of us can know the mind of God, Romans 11 says. God, what you have revealed is enough for us to find eternal life in Christ and to live in such a way that's pleasing to you. And so God, let us not get bogged down on the things that are unclear, the mysteries of the faith. But God, instead, let us be obedient to the things that are clear. And you've given us all things necessary pertaining to life and godliness. And so God, help us by your grace to live faithfully to the things that are true while we're awaiting the unraveling of the mystery of things we're not sure about. Thank you, Lord, for your word and its clear direction. Thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ and what it looks like to live faithfully for him in Scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name.